755 is real with David O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. Welcome, welcome. 755 is real. Glad to have you guys back. I'm David O'Brien, Braves writer for The Athletic, and I'm with my co-host Eric O'Flaherty, former Braves reliever. What's up, Eric? How you doing, man? Nothing. I'm good. It's kind of more of the same. Getting watch- a little stir crazy here. <laughs> you watching Mad Dog this morning? He's uh, on his Mad Dog day. Great. Well, I'll, I'll probably turn it on after this. Fifty fourth birthday. Yeah, and, I'll probably turn it on after this and, and see. They're run- and they're running his games all day on MLB Network for you folks who, uh, when you hear this, they'll still be going. I think they're showing a few of really good ones tonight. A couple of really good ones with the Braves. This first one they showed was. Uh, him getting his 300th win with the Cubs in his five and fly five and fly days, and he went five innings. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, so we're gonna do something different today, man. We've uh, we've been talking about how we're gonna get, take questions from people, but we we always run out of time and only get to one or two of them. So what we decided to do today is go with nothing but Q and A questions from all the people, listeners, and people on Twitter and all that, and. Thought we'd just knock out a bunch of them since so many people have so many great questions. I was really surprised how many good ones there were. Uh, didn't get to nearly all of them, but we got to quite a few. And hopefully, uh, you guys will will do this again before long. But we'll uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna knock out as many of these as we can. And I've already uh, ran them by Eric. Or he looked at them, so I, I I guess you weren't offended by any of them. You didn't answer, so. We're gonna no, we're no, gonna, we're good. We're gonna go through them. Let's start with uh, let's start with uh, without further delay from PW at LSU guy, and he asks, and I'm gonna give you the Twitter handle. That's what I'm giving you there uh, for you. Okay, people, for you people that aren't on Twitter, you don't know what the hell I'm talking about. That's what it is. Anyway, he asks if you had to pick one aspect of baseball that you're missing the most right now, what is it? Mm, uh, you know, probably just. Walking off the field and hanging out in the dugout uh, after a good outing, you know, you just when you're playing, you're just so focused on the preparation, getting ready for the game, getting your sleep, doing everything right, um, you know, getting all your pitches locked in, and then scouting the hitters uh, on other team. You know, you just you put all this energy and emotion into every single day that you know, it, it's kind of it's it's work. You know, you're working a lot, um, and even though you're playing a game, it, it kind of feels like a job, and then. You know, you finally put up a zero, you helped your team win, you did your job, it all went well, you get that last out and you stroll to the dugout, you know, get some high fives and then you just put your feet up and enjoy a Major League Baseball game. You got the best damn seat in the house. Um, yeah. That that moment for me was, it, it was the only time you just let your guard down and, and really soaked it all in that you were a Major League Baseball player, you know, and if, I just, I miss that so much, um, that feeling of accomplishment too and um, just soaking it all in like that, man, there's nothing better. You know, now that I'm reading the question, I'm wondering if the guy, hopefully that's what he was talking about, because he also could have been talking about what do we miss about baseball not being played right now. So either way, uh, we'll answer both of them. And if, yeah. and if he's talking about what we missed about baseball not being played, um, I would say, you know, I miss the, I miss the routine of it. I, I, I love that about baseball more, which is so different than the other sports in that they play virtually every day, you know, f- f- at least, uh, five to six games a week and a lot of times seven games a week. And I miss the routine of each day getting ready, going out to the ballpark and never knowing what you're going to see at a, at a game because you, you, you can see thousands of games, which I have, but then you'll have a game where, you know, 
you said, well, that's something I've never seen. And you never know what you're going to see at a ballpark. I think you pretty much know you have a real good idea what you're going to see in a basketball game or even a football game. But some things happen in baseball, it seems like, every game that are so different um, that you've something, like I said, that you've never seen. And I just miss the routine of going out to the ballpark, the whole thing of, you know, my job is obviously so much different than yours and a player's job. But uh, I just, I missed the whole thing. Getting to the park, getting settled in, going down, talking to players, watching batting practice, everything. Just it's baseball is so much about routine. And it's an all, you know, half a day you spend at the park doing all the stuff, whether you're a player or a writer or anything else. Uh, and uh, it's just, uh, it's just when you take that away, it's like, okay, what the hell am I going to do right now? <laughs> day after day. I, I, this is the time of the year where I feel like I should be going to a ballpark, you know, this time of the day, getting ready. Yeah. And even I took that question as him asking me personally, you know, yeah. being out of the game, but um, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, it's just, it's something about baseball being played every day that three, four o'clock comes around, you know, on the, on the West coast. And I know there's baseball on, mm-hmm. it's about time I'm ready to just shut it down for the day, hit the couch and, and, just kind of mindlessly watch some baseball and soak it all in. And, and that being gone, you know, you just, you kind of get to that part of the afternoon and you don't know what to do with yourself. And there's no story to watch. There's nothing to develop, but I really grew to like, uh, to watch, watching, um, to enjoy watching baseball the last few years. And uh, it it became a part of my retired routine, just flip the game on and, and soak it in. It's weird not having that this time of year because the weather's getting nice and you're just so used to it. It's just, you know, it's, it's just feels like it's missing, you know, a big part of my, my routine missing. Moving on to another one here. This is from uh Griffin Phillips at Griffin P 17 on Twitter. And he says, he asks, how difficult will it be for players to get geared back up for the season again? And we talked about this a few weeks ago, yeah. but, now, but now that we've been, uh, there's been no baseball for a month just over a month and a couple of days, things obviously changed. And obviously we're not going to get going here for at least a few weeks. Uh, who knows when they're going to open the camps. You see so many different reports and different ideas. And, you know, uh, I wish I could tell people they're going to start, you know, open camps in three or four weeks, but I can't. I don't know when. So, but at this point, after being out for a, for a month, how difficult, if let's, let's assume they're going to be out for, <laughs> At least at two. Le- at least two months. How difficult is it going to be to get it going again, Eric? Because we at one point we thought it might just be a few weeks before they reopen camps. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just the briefly. longer this goes. Yeah, yeah briefly. But <laughs> the longer this goes, the harder it's going to be because you know these guys were just playing games and getting ready for the season. Uh, now it's it's almost another off season, and this time they're not going to have really any time to get ready. I've heard people say it's going to be like a two week spring training and jump into the season. Mm-hmm. So the longer it goes, you know. The more off everybody's going to be, the uglier it's going to be out there. Um, but luckily for the players, everybody's going to suck or yeah. or at least be a little off. Yeah. Um, and I, I think as far as, you know, th- th- I think the craziest thing is, is for teams, the players, you're going to have different individual numbers and whatnot. But for teams, if it's a short season, you know, if it's 50 games – Anybody could sneak into the playoffs. And and that's why I think the league has two options of either letting almost everybody into the playoffs if you have to play less than 100 games mm-hmm. or going with their option. And I think it's why they're trying so hard to play 100 games is because they do want the best teams yeah. um, in the playoffs. And, you know, I like both options. If you could let 
12 to 16 teams in, you know, and just have a, a, a bigger playoff format if it's a short season. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could just you could just have eight to ten like normal, but it can't just be eight middle of the road teams because the Dodgers never got going and and right, you know right. the Braves never got going. You can't have that, and it'd be a disaster for the league. So I think as far as teams go, um, that's where it could get really wonky, and they're going to want as much time as possible because it could get you could have some crazy standings by the end of a 40, 50 game season. Yeah, and even if you only play eighty one, if you play a half season, you could still have. You could still have a lot lesser teams that, yeah. like like last year, we've looked at it. You know, like the Nationals didn't get going until you know a third of the season was gone. And I mean, there's been myriad examples of teams that you know, if you'd stopped at the All Star break, some of the best teams would not even have been in or would have barely snuck in. And you, you're gonna have you're gonna have to let you're gonna have to expand the rosters. Obviously, we only have two weeks to get ready because you're gonna take a lot of you're gonna need a lot of pitching. And there's going to be a lot of DL stints, I would think. There's going to be yeah. a lot of guys getting nagging injuries and that kind of thing. And you know, and 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 if you only play 81 games, then I don't. I, maybe the t, maybe you don't go back to the 15 day DL this year. Maybe you stay with 10, like you did five. last year. <laughs> yeah, maybe five, where you can give guys a break. You know, just to recharge and be back up. Yeah, and you know that it's just it's really hard to predict how it all play out, but. I would just I'd say that you almost have to you have to kind of foolproof it where you get all those those best teams in the playoffs mm-hmm. because you know I think in a in a sense it'd be really good that's what the that's the aspect that that second wild card added it 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 had a lot more teams mm-hmm. um that were still in the mix late in the season yeah but that's good for the season and that's good for baseball but if you don't have those big dog teams in MLB's not going to be happy because you know that's right. When you have the 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 Yankees, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, it's so good for the game um, and TV wise that I think the league's going to try to kind of foolproof that um, that risk. Yeah, and if they are able to start and be the first game back, they're going to get huge TV ratings uh, in the regular season, I think. And then, can you imagine if you get all the big teams? Because by the time the tournament rolls around, theoretically, the teams with the most talent are going to be playing at their best by then. You know, it's, it's yeah. eighty one games. By then, they're all yep. going to be playing at their best. So you might have real representative baseball in a tournament. By then, teams are going to mm-hmm. really be clicking. And can you imagine, a, like you said, a sixteen-team tournament? No, with the best with all the best teams and everybody playing their best by then. I mean, it could be really fun to watch. It'd be really cool, and I mean, it's just—it's actually this is a chance for MLB to yeah. kind of do some, just feel out some some different scenarios and see how they play out and see what the interaction is and it'll be tough to gauge if there's no other sports being played or mm-hmm. uh, different things going on. But I think another huge factor is, um, you know, playing in front of fans. If, if every yeah. game is out in Arizona or something like that, it's way different than if a hometown yeah. team gets to, you know, Minnesota or something like that, going deep into the playoffs, getting to do that in front of their hometown, hometown fans yeah. versus doing it out in Arizona. It's a totally different feel to it. So that's another thing that that'll matter. But yeah, it's just going to be really interesting to see what what they decide to do. Yeah, I mean, if they get a chance to play, they need to take advantage of the opportunity to do some crazy things, knowing that the season's already got a huge asterisk on it. Then try, yeah. try some things. Something might stick. Uh, and, yeah, something will stick. And who knows? If the thing goes, if you stretch the thing all the way and play your play your tournament, say, in November or even early December uh, in, a, in a warm weather or dome stadium, then uh, – by then, you might be able to play this in a place where they allow fans in. Who knows? But even if uh, even if you don't, it's going to be a huge TV event. 
So for sure, if they can do it, if they can do it and do it, you know, with a, with a, keep everybody healthy, then I say I try to do it, but we'll see. It's going to be interesting to watch in these coming weeks, man. Um, next question. With, this is from Charlie at Park 89 on Twitter. He asked, would like to hear Eric's perspective on how critical it was for him to have a catcher that had a very predictive, and I guess that would be predictable, and consistent rhythm of throwback to the pitcher, sign-giving location setup. Um, I feel the importance of that rhythm is often overlooked. So I guess he's asking predictive a consistent rhythm of throwing back to the pitcher sign giving the whole thing just consistency is that how you took that location yeah setup? I'm, I'm gonna be honest i really didn't care much about that at all um for me it was just about building momentum with catchers and having confidence in in them and you know the more success you have with a catcher um the more confident i felt uh, and and once you get results with a guy, then you just you're more confident out there. And when they call a pitch, you just believe in it and throw it. Um, mm-hmm. So more than anything, it was just about um, building that relationship with them. They could have thrown it back to me underhand or rolled it or done any. They could do anything they want setup wise. Um, if I had set up, if I had success with a catcher, I was going to be comfortable with them. Um, you know, like by the time in Atlanta. Ross, by the end of my time in Atlanta, Rossi or McCann could have called like an EFIS pitch with the game on the line. I would have, you know, I would have just assumed they saw something and chucked yeah. a 50 mile an hour four seamer right down the middle. Um, so for me, it was just about building that relationship with them. I didn't really, you know, I really didn't care about their routine back there, how they were getting the ball back to me. Uh, yeah. There was one guy that couldn't throw, I can't remember who it was, but uh, it might have been AJ. No, AJ didn't have this problem. We had a guy. That couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher. He had to. He had to. Uh, I remember. Pump. I, I, yeah, who was? God that? dang, who was it? Uh, he had to pump fake. Oh, it's Gerald Laird. He had to Gerald pump Laird fake. at the end, huh? Yeah, he had to pump fake, and uh-huh. then as he was falling forward from his pump fake, he had to kind of do like a free throw push and uh-huh. and lob it back. And wow, that that was kind of I didn't annoying. Realize that <laughs> he couldn't throw it back to the pitcher straight, <laughs> so he always he had to do a pump fake. And then he'd kind of like lean forward, falling down, and put his front hand down on the ground uh-huh. and and lob it back to you. And that was kind of like he called himself G Money and was always talking shit. And that'd be the moment where I'd be on the mound. G Money, you can't throw the ball back to me. What's going on? But you know, it kind of it was one of those things where it throw you off a little bit. But once you got the ball, you get back yeah. on the mound and, and get ready to throw the next pitch. And I think in general, pitchers need to be above um, letting something like that throw them off their game or, yeah. or even matter to them because there's just going to be so much more going on than than your catcher's rhythm. But you know, there might be a lot of guys that care about that. I just didn't. So G money at the end that so that was either physical or he had like the mini yips. Is he had the yips. One hundred percent. He had the yips. <laughs> that happens more often uh, than not with with usually with catchers because they're so trained to set their feet and do that specific throw to second base. Uh huh. Um, that when they try to do just like a baby throw back yeah. to the catcher, they'll 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 yank it or throw it over your head sometimes. And yeah, usually the 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 only way out of there is just to throw it really hard back to the pitcher too. But they'll get domed up and start doing those. And that was his fix was that pump fake fall over free throw layup thing he was doing. It was it's kind of awkward, but it, it worked for him. Did, I bet a lot of people don't realize uh, Gerald Laird, the, the, uh, where his number, 1-5, came from, his original number. I don't know that. <laughs> 
one player, or I'm sorry, one man, five tools. <laughs> Is that awesome or what? He has the best, um, one of the best stories I, I heard a guy tell. He was with uh, Detroit and they just won the World Series. And you know how he is. He's always just popping off. But I guess Hope Solo or somebody came and threw out the first pitch and he caught it. And whenever you, you know, you have some celebrity or something come throughout the first pitch, they sign a ball for you after. So he jogs out to the mound, hands you the ball, you know, nice to meet you and everything. And she said, um, hey, you want an autograph? He's like, sure. So she writes on it, you know, dear Gerald, dream big and signs <laughs> Hope Solo. And G-Money was like, uh, what do you say? He said, dream big. I got an S63 in a World Series parking and a World Series ring in the park. I got my car in the parking lot. I got a World Series ring. I got this, this, and this. He goes, you dream big. <laughs> he just started rambling off on all his accomplishments and told her to dream big. I was like, man, that's so that's so G-Money. <laughs> Boris used to tell me a story. Boris loved him when he had him as, a, you know, when he first came out of school. I get Gerald's like a Stanford guy, right? I don't know about I think, that. I think it's. I think it's a, a tough sell. Well, while you you keep talking about Gerald Lair for a second, let me look, look this up. up. <laughs> I can't be Stanford. I think Gerald Laird's a Stanford guy, he's, man. He's La Quinta High School. <laughs> I think he went to college. <laughs> okay, maybe not. Cypress College. Oh, Cypress College. Cypress College. <laughs> Cypress College. Stanford. Whatever. <laughs> if G, if G Money was a Stanford, you know guy, what though? I, I think I quit. He, I then he must anything. have been recruited by Stanford. Anyway, probably recruited and couldn't get in. Uh, Boris loved the guy and said he was a really smart guy. And he had to really talk to him a lot, though, when he was coming up and get his head on straight and all this stuff. But he was really great athlete. Yeah, and, he, you know, the one man, five tools things wasn't that big of a stretch when he was just starting out. Now, by the end, it was more like the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one tool. But anyway, he was uh, God, what a good dude, though. Yeah, funny, he's one of those guys guy. that's listed listed Sneaky. like sixty pounds um, less than his playing weight because they got drafted at like <laughs> yeah. one seventy five, and he's rolling around at two thirty five, and it still says one seventy five on the scoreboard. Hey, tell people how that you know, I, I over the years I can't even tell you how many times I get. There's still a lot of people that are so misled by when they look up a player, whether on Baseball Reference or in the media guide. And they say, well, he's only like 165 pounds. I'm like, no, no, no. Tell people They just how, don't update it. Yeah, a lot of times. Now, they're getting better at it now. But there's still are, yeah. so many guys that for so long, they never. there are teams that never updated the player's weight. After well, like a, a Rodis. A Rodis Viscaino was listed as 165 for forever. And he was, I think he was 235 when we were teammates. Yes. Um, but basically what happens is everybody gets – they used to just sign you and they'd put your weight in. So I got drafted at 6'3", 195. Uh -huh. My weight was 195 on everything until, I don't know, maybe I got traded or something. Every once in a while they would update it and then I was 220. And then when I was 220, I was actually pitching at 205. But they just <laughs> they just don't update it that much. You know, you can – you have guys though, especially the Latin guys because they get signed yeah. so young. right. And then they'd come over and then they'd get to the big leagues and start eating the big league spread. Right. And they'd put on, you know, 20, 25 pounds after they got to the big leagues. And they'd already put on 40 since they got drafted. So you could have a guy weighing 250 listed yeah. at, you know, 190 pounds. And the worst thing is they used to Lovon put it on TV Hernandez. and the guys, yeah, they'd put it, Viva was a perfect example, but they put the weight on TV. Yeah. And <laughs> Take it straight you're from the watching media this guy. guy his gut's hanging over his, his belt. It looks like he hasn't missed a meal in five years, and it's listed as 172. 
Well, you know, when Levo, when Levant signed with the Marlins, I was covering the Marlins and he came over and didn't speak any English and they sent him down, you know, straight from Cuba, him and his brother-in-law. Yeah. Uh, and, well, no, his brother-in-law came later. It was, it was him and Osvaldo Hernandez came over. Was, uh, that was his brother-in-law. Who was the one that came over with Levant and signed with uh, St. Louis, the other Cuban? El Duque. No, that, El Duque was his brother-in-law. He came oh. over later. He came over later. But he came over with Levant. I don't know. He signed know. with St. Louis. The other guy did. They came over together. They, uh, or they didn't come over. They, uh, they uh, escaped together on the boat together. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the Marlins signed Levon, and he was night listed as nineteen at the time. And they sent him down to somewhere in the deep south to the minor league, uh, wherever A ball was. He didn't speak any English. He's like, a, and this is a story I've heard from a lot of guys when they go when they get sent down to the minor leagues to the sticks. They're going, they go through drive-throughs and they learn and a lot of order by the number. They say number five, they learn that yep. and they point to the menu. Or they learn one thing, like hamburger or whatever. Pizza. Pizza. Yep. And they order the same thing every day. I mean, you know, yeah. when we say you feel for those guys, they're, they're not kidding, man. Imagine living in a culture where you can't speak any English. Uh, you know, if you were if you were adapted if they're in the reverse It'd be situation. Yeah. So they make do it. And anyway, Levon you know, had, been, had grown up in Cuba, had never been exposed to, you know, fast food and all this. And he ate, like, fast food at Wendy's, like, three times a day. Yeah. And, you know, by, a the time, story on that. by the time, a, a year later, he had already put on, like, 30 pounds, you know. But he was his, one of those guys um, listed at, like, 180. His, one of my favorite stories he would tell, um, because I guess he got a big signing bonus. So he yeah. bought himself, he bought himself, like, a Ferrari or something uh-huh. like that. And so he was telling us about, just the, the change in food when he came over and, and how he thought Wendy's and whatnot, all these restaurants, restaurants he called them were, were just so awesome because you didn't have to wait that long. Yeah. And uh, he he picks this girl or he's talking to this girl at a mall and he's saying, you know, I want to take you out to a really nice dinner tonight. You know, he's just he's just trying to woo her really hard. Right. And, and she's like, yeah. So she gave him her number. He's like, I'll pick you up at seven o'clock. I can't wait for you to see this restaurant. <laughs> picks her up in his Ferrari or, or whatever car he bought. It's like a Ferrari or, or Lamborghini or Porsche or something like yeah. that. And he drives her to McDonald's. And <laughs> he's like, you got to try. You know, he's telling her his order and everything he gets. And, and she was like, you know, this is like the, the worst restaurant you could possibly take a girl to on her first date. But that was just him coming over from Cuba. He had no clue. Yeah. He thought he was, he really, he says it all. He's like, I really thought I was hooking her up and taking her out to a nice dinner. Because even what McDonald's cost was still kind of expensive for, for yeah. somewhere where he was coming from growing up. Uh, it's just a, such a change in culture. Speaking of cars, man, you probably have tons of stories about guys, bonus babies buying ridiculous cars and all this stuff. I remember when the Marlins drafted Josh Booty. Remember the quarterback? We ended yeah. up going back after his baseball career flamed out. Went up, went, ended up going back to LSU where his brother, his younger brother was a wide receiver. And Josh went, ended up going back into some quarterback there, like in his mid twenties, you know, he's like 24, yeah. maybe when he went back 25. Uh, but anyway, the Marlins drafted him with the fifth overall pick in 1994 uh, out of Shreveport, Louisiana, out of high school there. And he came to camp and he signed a major league contract. Jeff Moore, I was his agent, signed a major league contract right, after, right off the bat. So he came to spring training for major league spring training that first year as a teenager. 
and he was driving an uh remember those Acura NSXs? They looked like, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. they were badass. He was driving a red one that had a licensed vanity plate that said number five pick. (laughs) (laughs) Custom license plates are a red flag. (laughs) Yes. He got so much shit from the guys, man. (laughs) One of the the craziest things I ever saw somebody do was actually a guy from my hometown. Um, And I can't say this story is a million percent true, but I heard it quite a few times when I was with Seattle. Uh, This guy, Jared Jones, um, got recruited all the way from Walla Walla up in Washington to go play quarterback at Uh Florida state. And he kind of, I think he got drunk and broke into a girl's dorm room or something. He had something happen, some big event where he got um, basically flamed out and, and couldn't play at Florida state. They got rid of him. He tried to play somewhere else. It didn't work. So he said he had been drafted for baseball too. So he called up the Mariners and um, said he wanted to play. And then they gave him like $150,000 signing bonus. And he took it. And once his bonus cleared, he bought an Escalade and drove home. So he played in rookie ball for like two weeks and then quit and just took the money. So they got, I mean, he had some, he had some uh, judgment issues I'm thinking, but um, I've heard this story from guys in Seattle. They're like, yeah, once he got his, everything was cleared and, and he played enough games for it to count. He just bought an Escalade and drove home. <laughs> Oh, man. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo, for their big day. Did you know the Black Tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible unless you're dressing like your grandpa on Halloween. We felt pretty weird buying a suit from a guy having the worst day of his life. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us all the way to our wedding day, so we got out of there. (laughs) And, And who wouldn't? What I love about the Black Tux is that they have an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. Wow. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with the code BRAVES. That's theblacktux.com, code BRAVES for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. Matt Pelt at M Pelt 15 on Twitter asks, did AA Alex Anthopoulos know about the coronavirus before everyone else? And that's why we didn't resign Donaldson. <laughs> yes. 100%. A lot of people don't know that Alex is prescient. Alex has a gift uh, of being able to, <laughs> to tell when world events like this are going to happen, but no, but no, but they do. Uh, you know, when they didn't sign him, the reason being they didn't want to give so much at the back end of it. That fourth year, 
that the Twins gave him with that fifth-year option ended up being, you know, that guarantee basically for the fourth year was huge. And the Braves didn't want to have dead money that much at the back end of their deal, so they would have gone forward with him, but for a lot less at the back end. And oh, I, I heard that they, um, that someone in the, I've heard from someone from an office that the Braves did, um, they installed a virus analytics department last November. <laughs> you didn't hear about that? How you had me going, man? Um, <laughs> but they, uh, but they are looking smart because I mean, this is one of the things that could happen. Obviously, when you no. sign an older guy. An older guy, you know, things can happen, not, not coronavirus, it's a virus, but, right. when you, but, but things when you sign an older guy to a four year deal or whatever, you're signing him basically for the first couple of years. You're going, look, we're not going to get our right. money's worth at the back end of it. We're going to get it at the front end of it. The twins are counting on being a World Series contender this year. They thought Josh could be the, the difference maker to put him over the top and maybe he'll end up being that. But man, if you're the twins or anybody else that signs an older player, uh, to a long-term contract and you there's a chance you're going to miss out on the biggest year you're probably paying him for because he's not getting any younger this really that really hurts man i mean that's it, why the service time hurts yeah. because if you have a young core and you're trying to you know spice it up with a guy like donaldson and, and compliment it yeah. um and then you lose this year you not only lose his best year because he's a year older yeah but you lose that control of that that core group that you have that you're really trying to 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 ride into success. Yeah. Uh, but that's why it kills you because now that they have one less year to 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 capitalize on on having that core. You know, even though you don't have to pay the guys or whatever, I think it just kills teams that that have a a shorter window or a smaller window and and not the budget to just keep buying players. Yeah. Now, I mean, if they don't play any games, they're obviously not going to have to pay Josh all the money that he, they owe him this first year. But still, point, it's a year off his contract. Yeah. And they didn't sign him for those last couple of years. They signed him for these first couple of years when they think he'll still be a damn good player. So yeah. that hurts. And if that he hurts. does, yeah. And if he does play, you know, a full season, it's going to get a salary. I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, or whatever they play, they're going to prorate it, and he's going to, but he's going to get paid a lot of money if they play a hundred games or whatever it is. But yeah, yeah. The fact is, they're losing a year of that whatever uh, of of the contract they gave him. So, and by That'll the same be some type of season, I mean, it has to be. And by the same token, guys who signed these one year deals, you know, it did not that get hurts. the yeah for them. They didn't get that long term security. Well, how about if you're? Uh, how about if you don't play at all? Ozuna's the best case. Exactly. I mean, best example. If you don't play at all, you're Marcelo Zuna. You're still relatively young. You're 30. But he was on the, he looked like an older player those last couple of years coming off that great year in 17 with the Marlins. His two years with the Cardinals were not nearly as good. So you go from that to signing a one year deal to reestablish your free agent value. And then how about if you don't play at all? Or you have an 80 game season and you don't really get going? How much is your value diminished? That's the thing, you know, it's not playing is not a good thing. Yeah, you know, it's you're basically on two unproductive years, even yeah. if it's unfair to to look at it that way. Um, not playing for a year is very unproductive. You didn't do anything to help a team or, or help your case. Uh, guys like that, man, I mean, it could it, it could be a situation where you have to sign a minor league deal and then have a crappy spring training and then go down to AAA and don't do well. And, and some guys will be out of the game uh, when this year could have turned their whole career around. How about Cole Hamels? Yeah. I mean, how about he, well, him? his situation's good, I think. Well, I mean, he, 
he, he ended last season, you know, uh, he had a couple of injuries last year and then he gets hurt in spring training. It's good if he pitches and shows he's if healthy, he pitches, but how about yeah. if he doesn't pitch at all this year? How about if there's no season? What kind I of think, deal could he get? I think he'd still be able to get a major league contract, you know. Right. Um, For a lot less money, obviously. Yeah, less money. and At 38 years old. Yeah, he's a year older. That those, Every year counts when you start yeah. getting into your 30s. Mm-hmm. This next one is from Braves Dugout Podcast at Braves Dugout Pod. Wait a minute. That's our competitor. Uh oh. <laughs> let's let's give him a terrible answer. All right, let's do. Let's say based on baseball reference, Eddie Matthews acquired more war than Chipper. What are your thoughts on who technically had a better career? It's a good question. You know, uh, go you ahead. Go, I, I'll, I'm going to go with. I'm going to admit I did not see Eddie play except from video. I know how great he is. I've heard people talk about him. I've seen video. I've seen the numbers, obviously, that don't lie. So I'm going to be a I'm going to be claim recency bias, and I'm going to go chipper, but I'm not but not by much. And I'm going to give Chipper a slight edge. The fact is, they're usually rated as two of the best five third basemen in history. Imagine that. Two from the two uh Different eras of the Braves, but they were both played in Atlanta. Eddie, at the very end of his career, played a year in Atlanta, a year or two, a year, I think. Um, so to have two of the best five from your franchise in the last uh, half century is pretty damn impressive in the last 55, 60 years. But I'm going to go recency bias and Chipper. And the other thing is I'm going to – why I don't think it's necessarily bias and probably is accurate. Chipper played on – uh, during that run of 14 division titles, and he was around for most of them, and he was a big part of most of them, and a big part of the World Series championship team, and he won an MVP. And I'm going to have to go with Chipper uh, just because of that. He was on so many damn good teams and such a big part of it, but not by much. And he's a switch hitter and one of the greatest three switch hitters probably in history. Yeah. You know, I don't. I, I hate trying to compare players from different yeah. eras, yeah, um, it, mainly just because the competition levels are so different. Um, I'm I'm not the best at analyzing stats, especially with all these new stats coming out telling me the stats that I thought mattered don't and, and whatnot. I mean, it's just confusing at this point for me to try to do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I hate the debates of so-and-so was playing against better competition or whatever because – it completely dismisses the competitive gene that most professional athletes have that make them the best in the first place. You know, mm-hmm. it's you always hear people say if Babe Ruth was playing in today's game, um, you know, who, how would he hit a, a cutter? How would he hit 97 or his swing wouldn't work against this? Yeah. But the thing is, is it worked against every pitch he was seeing and there wasn't a higher league to put him in. So, and you can't assume that a guy that was the best in the world and and that's who he was you know i mean he was he found a way to be the best based on the league he was playing in um you're telling me he couldn't learn to how to hit 97 if he had the chance to yeah. see it consistently uh you know that'd be like saying mike trout was just an okay ball player because pitchers only threw 95 96 in the 2010s uh in his prime and now they throw 101 consistently so you know there's no way mike trout could be as good as whoever's good in the year 2040 but anybody watching mike trout knows right, right. there's not a league you could put him in um, so I hate the conversation or I hate the, the conversation, the debate, even when you're talking like LeBron versus Jordan, it's Jordan would have got better if he played against tougher defense or whatever it was. Um, so, I mean, I have a really hard time answering those questions. Um, I have no clue. I'm going to pick Chipper because he bought me a lot of steak dinners. <laughs> well, there you go. That's honesty. Um, 
in the end, Chipper had that slash line, man. Over he stayed over 300, 400, yeah. 500. Played 19 years, played through age 40, uh, and kept it over 300, 400, 500. Uh, he was at 303, 401, 529 as a switch hitter, you know? And Matthews, 271, 376, 509 slash. So he was 885 OPS. Chipper was 930 OPS. Eddie Matthews, though, at his peak. Oh, my God. This guy led the majors in homers twice, 47 and 46 homers, which Chipper had 45 one year. Matthews had two other years where he had over 40 or 40 or more. Uh, led the majors in ribbies once with 124. Led the the NL in ribbies. Uh, I'm sorry, in walks with 124. Chipper was a huge walks guy. Well, so was Eddie Matthews. Chipper had more stri- uh, walks than strikeouts in an era, you know, a, the next era than than Eddie Matthews, which is even more impressive. But Eddie Matthews almost had as many. He had 1,444 walks, 1,487 strikeouts. And he had a year where he had uh, 124 walks. But, you know, it's just uh, I'm going to go with Chipper, by, like I said, by nose. Matthews had 512 homers, so he had quite a few more homers than Chipper. But uh, Chipper, in, in every other regard, was a little better, uh, basically. Uh, did Matthews win any gold gloves? Uh, no, but he played, you know, gets heady competition. Chipper almost won one one year. Um, let's see. And then when I'm looking at – yeah, anyway – Two seasons, Matthews was top 10 in defensive war, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're really close. It's splitting hairs, and, and you can make a case for both, but I'm going to go chipper. Uh, next, looking at, we have got from Ryan, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Picote or Picata, Mr. Picata, at Mr. Picata on Twitter. And he asks. Huh? Picate. Maybe Picate. Picate, you're probably right. Picote. Picote, yeah. maybe. If the season goes through as through as planned, well, I don't know what to see if what the plan yeah, is at this plan? point. Will there be a trade deadline still? Oh man. How far back do you think it'll be moved? Do you think that it will be as important as it has been in years prior? In other words, will teams be going for it this year, knowing the season will have? I don't know, man. I, I just don't think you can answer the question because we have no idea yet when they're going to get started. I mean, we've heard plans. But how how much how much validity is there to those plans? I, those are wishful thinking in a lot of ways. I mean, these are best case scenarios that you're hearing that they could play all the games in say in Arizona or try to play them in, in Arizona and Florida. I mean, they're talking everything right now. Now, if they have a season, I think there will be a trade deadline of some kind. Uh, don't there have there has to be right? I mean, you, you're kind of why not? Can't not have one. You yeah. can't trade on the last day of the season. Right. So you have you'd, to set a date. You'd probably put it a month before the end of the season. Maybe if, uh, it's if, normally, you if, know, if you it's normally two thirds of the way through. So if you had a hundred game season, you just put it 65 games in or something like that. Yeah. Um, let it be a month and a half away. Cause you can't have guys, you can't have teams making trades, whatever. If it's November 1st is the last day of the season, you can't have people making trades November 1st. So no. you have to have a deadline unless you're going to ban trades at all. But right. I think you have to let teams make trades if they want to. You yeah, know, they're, sure. they're not going to have to make trades, but I think it's really just going to depend on the the playoff format. You know, yeah. if yeah, yeah, if, if 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 25 teams are in, you're not going to sell the house to make the playoffs. But if it's only eight, you get in. Anything can happen. Yeah. Um. And like we talked about earlier, doing it in front of your home fans, um, I think is a lot is a is a really big factor. Um, versus it it happening somewhere like Arizona away from all that 
especially if you're not even gonna be able to have a parade or do all that celebrating or all those things that really make it special. Um, but yeah, I think it just depends on the playoff format, how likely teams are to go for it. Yeah, well, they've talked. There's been a lot of talk, a movement afoot to move the the trade deadline back, which yeah. I think they're going to do. So it makes sense. But anyway, I mean, in a regular year, it's so. going to be later this year. Yeah, yeah. So I think it would be later, and obviously, than it would have normally been in a even if the season is shortened. So, um, yeah. next one is from Lee Wilson at Lee C Wilson on Twitter. He asked, Eric, can you talk about how your repertoire evolved over your career and what coaches were most helpful to you? Yeah. Um, so I came into pro ball and I had terrible mechanics. I just threw the ball as hard as I could. But because I was left-handed through 92, that played all the way to A ball. Um, and then I got working with a coach in uh, Wisconsin in my second year there of having about a six and a half ERA and you know, possibly getting released. And he tried to get through to me before. Um, so I was 20 at this time. And he um, he basically just told me, you know, it, you got to get this through your thick head that it's not working. You know, you've seen the results and whatnot. He sat down and just straightened me out. Um, he, he, asked, he threatened to fight me if I didn't start listening to him. Um, <laughs> and he's a big guy, six foot six, you know, 250. I wasn't going to fight him. Um, I was like, all right, let me hear this guy out. And I was at rock bottom career-wise anyway, two years uh-huh. in a row in A-ball with a six. You're, you're probably done pretty soon. Um, but he just took like two or three things uh, that I was doing consistently wrong with my delivery, straightened them out, gave me some drills to do, and he taught me a cutter. And I pretty much rode those mechanical adjustments and and that cutter all the way to the big leagues. So I was in A-ball in 2005 and 2006, I finished the year in the big leagues at 21. So, I mean, that's just, that shows you what a difference some good Uh coaching can make for a guy. Cause I always had the talent. I just was stupid. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a good head on my shoulders. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just angry out there. I didn't listen to anybody. Um, So that played, um, I rode that cutter to a couple of good seasons in Seattle and then about the second, late in the second half of 07, um, I'd just thrown so many cutters and sliders and off speed. The league finally adjusted to it and I started getting shelled um, and I got hurt a little bit. And then I came to Atlanta after I got released from Seattle. And after like my second year in Seattle uh, or in Atlanta, I started throwing a sinker uh-huh. and that, that sinker, um, you know, I think it kind of destroyed my arm, but it turned into almost a get out of jail free card. Um, and BMAC would call it over and over and over again to lefties to where I threw that sinker so much. I think I actually changed my mechanics back to some of my old bad habits, kind of getting out of my legs and trying to manipulate the ball. Um, but I threw that sinker for three straight years and put up awesome numbers until uh, my arm blew out. And then coming back from Tommy John, I never really found it again. Um, I was kind of chasing that sinker, but I didn't want to throw it because I thought it was bad for my arm and shoulder and whatnot. And did a coach uh, suggest that the sinker when you came when you came over? Yeah, there? yeah. Well, every no one suggested the sinker. I just had natural movement, but I didn't right. throw it that much because I couldn't throw it for strikes. Right. Um, and once BMAC started calling it for lefties, I could just throw it right down the middle. So that taught me how to get in the zone, and that's when I started really riding it hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after Tommy John, everybody wanted me to go back to being the sinker guy I was before. Uh huh. But I I kind of knew that that led me to change my mechanics and hurt my arm. But it was my only worth anything pitch I had. 
So the, the catchers just kept calling it and calling it. And it was my only way to get out. Um, I just kind of got stuck in this funk where I really needed to go to AAA and get back to four seam cutter curveball and, and healthy mechanics and, and get my delivery locked back in. Uh, but you're always trying to put up numbers in the big league. So I was just kind of stuck in this situation where I just kept throwing the sinkers and um, I had nothing else to throw. Uh, it was it was tough. But yeah, overall, um, that sinker itself, man, it, it made me a lot of money. So I'm not I'm not too mad yeah. at it. <laughs> Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise or meditation. But not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code 755 at checkout. Again, let's go to drinkhydrate.com and enter promo code 755 at checkout for 25% off your first order. All right, Jeremy Hudson. This was from Jeremy Hudson at Grocery Guy 538. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, Dave, who is the prospect that you expected to be a superstar but didn't pan out? And we'll both answer this, but I'll, I'll start with an obvious one. And... And he still had made a lot of money and 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 got a World Series ring. So it's kind of hard to say didn't pan out. But we thought Jason Hayward was going to be a superstar. He ended up being a superstar defensive player, but the offense isn't nearly what we thought it was going to be coming up in the minors and those first that first spring training. I remember when he was breaking windshields and beyond the right field wall at you know, it's spring training, but it just goes to show you, you know, you get caught up in spring training and stats and batting practice and you forget how technically advanced the major leagues and scouting are and how pitchers, how good pitchers are in the majors compared to the minors and what they can do with scouting reports and how they can just exploit when they find a hitter's weakness. They, oh, can, yeah. get a, they can get away with that in the minor leagues, but man, when they have a hole in their swing, they are going to find it in the big leagues. Am I right? Well, so with Jay Hay, um, first of all, when you see a dude that's six six, mm-hmm. just shredded two fifty, uh, yeah. you're gonna your first instinct is gonna be to stay down and away from him. So he's yeah. probably pitched like that his entire life. Yeah. Um, and like you said, if you know he had a he had a little hole in his swing up and in, mm-hmm. he could get to it if he cheated, but he couldn't cover the other pitches. Um, and I started noticing it probably his second or third year in the big leagues. We'd play the Phillies, and Carlos Ruiz would just set up up and in uh-huh. for. Uh, three games straight you know every at bat he get in that series he'd just be getting pounded fastballs up and in um and i think what's incredible about him is to have that spot he can't get to and he still does what he does um numbers wise and and he's just such a great competitor he'll get that one pitch where they miss mm-hmm. down the way out over the plate or something he'll do damage but 
Yeah, I thought, you know, after his first that first game he had and, and all that hype his first year, you, you thought you were looking at like the next yeah. Griffey or, or, or Hank Aaron or someone of, you know, you thought you were looking yeah. at a Hall of Fame caliber player. And, yeah. you know, this they just had that spot in his swing he couldn't get to. You know, and like I said, he's made a lot of money, and he's still a Gold Glove outfielder. And you know, but he you had know, another thing twenty seven homers one year, and I thought that was going to be a routine for him. I really did. I thought he was going to be a thirty homer guy. I did too. But you know, another thing about him is he's still a guy that all his teammates want on his team. Yeah, uh, he's just such a gamer. Uh, his defense in right field and and what he brings to the field on a daily basis. Um, he's a superstar in my mind. I know he just didn't. He hadn't put up the numbers and, and been the guy people expected, but. Um, still a stud, and and he's you know he's putting together a hell of a career considering that there's a spot in the yeah. in the strike zone he can't get to. Uh, another guy, another guy that Braves fans, uh, most Braves fans are familiar with, Jordan Schaefer. Mm. He came up. He was a little old. How old was Jordan when he came? Twenty four, I think. Yeah, a little older than or most. He had some injuries, that kind of thing, but he figured some things out. And he had a spring training where he was the best player on the field in every game just about. I mean, he was the best Brave on the field. And it was not even close. I mean, he was phenomenal. He yeah. wins the opening day starting job, hits a home run opening day at Philly. And I thought this guy's on his way now. He could do everything. He was legit. He was a legit five-tool guy. If the power was there for a little guy, he had some power. But he had the, all the other tools. And, you know, one injury after another, Another he was another guy that I think teams got a scouting report on, but I think yep. it was injuries more than anything with him. Tried to play through some pretty major injuries and just set him back further, and he just never recovered. He could never stay healthy with the legs, the hand. He had the bad hand injury that year that started off so promising in Philly. He, he broke a bone in his hand. I think he tried to play with it. Uh, I think he did that the first series. Yeah, and he never yeah. and he just never was the same again. But, man, for one spring, he looked like an absolute stud. I thought this guy's got everything. He's going to be a stud. Yeah, and he was getting hyped up, too. Uh, and we, you know, we all bought it, too, especially some of the plays he was making in the outfield yeah. and, and his speed. And a I gun. remember watching. He had a gun. Well, he, I mean, he threw 95 off the mound a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching him do some agilities one time, though, with, with good athletes all around him. And, and he was so much faster, so much. His quick twitch muscles were just, mm-hmm. uh, you just thought you were looking at a five tool stud athlete. But I mean, it just, it's so hard to, to yeah. project what prospects are going to do. I mean, the big leagues is tough. <laughs> to put you it know. mildly, <laughs> it's tough league. Uh, another guy. I'm one of my favorite guys ever. Uh, I considered writing about him in my in my uh, favorite player thing when I wrote about Andre Dawson last week. But Andre was my guy. But another guy, I love this guy, Cliff Floyd, mm. friend of mine. Everybody loves him. I covered, yeah, he's a great dude. Covered him uh, with the Marlins when the Marlins got him. They got Cliff from Montreal. Now, he came up with Montreal. And Cliff was like, when he came up with Montreal, uh, you know, he might not have been like Vlad Guerrero level, but he was pretty close as far as a talent level. He was a really big prospect. He was like athlete of the year in the Chicago Sun-Times in high school, stud basketball player, uh, terrific two-sport athlete in Chicago, goes to Montreal, 6'5", 225, ripped. I mean, a body like a Greek god. He goes to Montreal, he's playing first base, he got one of those plays where where a, a pitcher leads him over a little bit too into into the uh, uh, baseline. One of those nasty collisions with a runner, and he's left handed. He catches the ball. Runner 
uh, he's right handed, he catches with his left hand, and the runner collides with him. I forgot who it was, collides with him. His hand exploded. It broke all the little bones in his hand. Like all the little bones were just screwed up. He had to wear one of those contraptions, those steel cage contraptions with all the little things like a, uh, like eraser head or going into your arm, you know, the metal thing screws to hold, to stabilize his hand. It was career threatening. So it really set him back for a couple of years to get that strength back. It took a long time. So by the time the Marlins got him, he was, uh, he was 24 with the Marlins and he'd only played, he had not, his, he hadn't played, had more than, uh, he had 366 plate appearances with the Expos in, uh, his age 21 season was fifth in the rookie of the year balloting. And then he got hurt and was out for a long time, came over to the Marlins, put, started putting it together again. I mean, and, and like I said, this guy had everything. He was, he, he, he hit, Jim Leland said he hit the ball as hard as anybody he had seen other than Willie McCovey. Mm. He hit line drives like that that would tear gloves off of infielders that were reaching up for him. I mean, he hit the – he killed the ball. And he had a year with the Marlins in 98 as a 25-year-old and thought, this guy's back on track. He's on his way again. He had 45 doubles that year because this guy could run, man. He was huge, but he could run. He had 45 doubles – 22 bombs and 40, and I'm sorry, 27 stolen bases that year with the Marlins. And I thought, okay, he's got it going again. And then he would still have these injuries, though. He'd have a hamstring injury. Uh, he, he was one of those guys who couldn't stay healthy. It was kind of too, in too, with too big, you know, too muscular to stay, kind of like Stanton. How, but, it, but he wasn't ridiculously ripped like Stanton, but he just had a big athletic body that was like a Ferrari, you know, he'd get a little, yeah, a little pull and it would sideline him, be a deal. So, uh, you know, Cliff had a, a, you had one year where I thought this is the guy that I thought he was going to be every year. And that was in his age 28 season in 2001. I covered him. That was my last full season covering the Marlins. He finished 22nd, got MVP votes that year. It was the only year he made the All-Star team. He hit 317 with 44 doubles, 31 bombs, 103 RBIs, and a 968 OPS. And I thought that's what he could have been for really his entire career. He was 28 at the time. And that was the best year he ever had. Never had, never stayed healthy again for he only had one other healthy season where he played uh until he was like 32 with the Mets. And by then he was kind of, you know, he was still really good, still at 34 bombs with the Mets at 273. But it just can never put those years together back to back, ever. He had never had back to back years like that. So that was another guy. Like you said, the majors is so hard. And you got to be able to play, man. You know? Yeah. You got to You have a guy like Dustin, Dustin Pedroia with no tools, you know? Yeah. He's, he wins exactly. an MVP. It's, exactly. Baseball is just crazy like that. I remember, you know, I thought Julio was. He was pretty hyped up. He was supposed to be a superstar when he was throwing 99. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is, yep. it, you know, with, with prospects and all this stuff, you, you look at these guys and they put together like Cliff Floyd. He put together a 17 year major league career. Yep. You know, it's, Made 50 it's, some million. it's really hard because the potential is one thing, but what guys do when they actually get to the big leagues and any prospect you could have that you could say this guy's going to play 17 years in the big leagues. Yeah. That's a number one prospect for yeah. me. It, yeah, it's right. It's so hard to to even get to this level and and stay there, um, but that's what makes it so tough too. Is that you get these guys so hyped up and and you know all their potential and everything that to the point where they put together like even Julio's had a great career. It's, yeah, he's got ten years maybe now, and 
you look at it and it's like, oh, that's kind of disappointing compared to what he could have been. But um, that's why it's so tough to evaluate prospects and predict what they're going to be because everything can change once they get to that league. But any draft pick or prospect that plays 10 years in the big leagues for me is a huge uh, win. And I don't think guys get nearly enough credit for when they when they could go these stretches of like five and six years like Andrew Jones did, Chipper did early right, in his career, right. and, uh, and, uh, and like Murph did on their career, where they play 158 to 162 no. games. They don't get enough credit for that because it is hard. I mean, yeah, you, and they you pay, gotta they avoid pay the price on the backside. Yeah, exactly. You gotta avoid having any kind of like even a even a hamstring injury that like might keep you me from running for a few days. You know, from <laughs> yeah, they play through it. They play through it. You know, you're playing yeah. the highest level ball, and the game is so fast, and they're playing through injuries. Like you know, like Cal did the Ironman streak. I mean, he should have sat That'll down quite never. a few times, but. <laughs> To play, look, go back and look at Andrew and Chipper's career. People talk about Chipper couldn't stay on the field at the end of the career. Well, look how, look what he did for, for the first half of his career. That dude was out there playing every day. Andrew played every day for several years. I mean, he was jumping, making those catches, beating up his shoulders, banging into walls. Murph was the same way. His knees were hobbled at the end. So they pay yeah. for it at the end, but it's, it's a physical game in that regard. The rigors that it, what it, the the toll it takes on a body, and to be a superstar, you can't just have superstar talent. Nope. You got to stay on the field, man. Exactly. Yeah, you know, people don't really understand the damage that you're doing to yourself by playing through little injuries, right? Because yep. you're compensating the whole time. Yeah. That's why you see a guy like Chipper at the end of his career. You see how he's jogging off the field, and it just looks like it hurts. Right. Because he's hurt every joint in that whole body, and 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 then stressed another joint trying to compensate and and cover that one. Uh, it, there's nothing that baseball players respect more than than the guys that play every day. Absolutely. They just go out there and they bring it. So that's why it's always hard for me to say anything bad about a guy I've seen. You know, like I watched Jay Hay go through a season and, and play through as much as he did. It's it's always hard to say anything even slightly critical of guys like that. And then that's why Freddie Freeman and you hear people oh, yeah. you know, criticize him for playing through injuries. But like you said, that's the most respected thing in a clubhouse. It is. To know it sets a tone for everybody because you're not going to sit out. If you're a good teammate at all, you're not going to sit out with some – relatively minor injury when you see Freddie Freeman playing good put going through what he's going through to play where he can't even like take batting practice, you know, cause he's hurting so much and he's trying to play. <laughs> yeah. You're going to play it, if you have a little nagging yeah. injury. And well, and the flip side of that is that a lot of times the guys that milk it come out on top because they tell yep. the media how beat up they are and yep. they need a week and, and they, they play this whole thing and they string everybody along where it's like, Oh man, he's so beat up. And then there's the other guy that's just keeping his mouth shut and playing through it right. that all his teammates respect. And they know he's, you know, he's like, like Freddie's shoes where yep. Freddie didn't want, he didn't want credit for playing through that stuff. Um, as far as your teammates go, your teammates respect the guy that's, you know, not really spilling the beans and, and, putting built-in excuses in and everything like that. But it almost works in the opposite uh, yeah. way a lot of times. Nick Marcakis goes out there and plays every game for most yeah. of his career. He's played almost every day. He has never used an injury as an excuse, <laughs> no. ever. And he could. I'm sure he could. And that's and one of the reasons gets you off the hook. They in the clubhouse, there's nobody that's more revered in the clubhouse. And so that's a good example, too. Yeah. Um, another guy, one other guy for me, A.J. Burnett. He had a hell, he had a good career, hell of a career. Went 164, 157, 399 ERA, 28, 8 war for those into that, B war, 17 seasons. But it's just that I expected him to be a superstar yeah. after watching him throw his stuff was filthy. His stuff. Oh. Yeah, with that stuff. Oh yeah. 
I'm with you. I, I expect him to be a big star after watching him throw a no-hitter in his first full season in the majors when I was covering the Marlins in 2001. And then his second full year, he threw seven complete games, including five shutouts. He led the majors with five shutouts in his second full season in 02. Had 203 strikeouts and 204 innings that year. But he also had 90 walks and 14 wild pitches that year. Hence the issue that held him back, that and the injuries that prevented <laughs> him from something. being an absolute superstar. He didn't it's hard win. To put it all together. <laughs> yeah, he didn't win more than twelve games in a season until he was thirty-one, and he didn't make an All-Star team until his final year in the big leagues at age thirty-eight with the Pirates. What Dang. a strange career he had. With that stuff too, you know. Yes, yeah. it's, it's nastiest. Some of the nastiest stuff I've seen. Oh. Upper 90s, had that knuckle curve. He was, well, he was unhittable that night in San Diego. He walked nine guys but didn't give up a hit. <laughs> <laughs> that almost shouldn't count. No, no. Nine walks and a hit batter. And he still threw a no-hitter in like 130 uh, pitches. Yeah, we watched, uh, we watched Ubaldo Jimenez do that at uh, yeah. at uh, at Turner Field. And yeah. we didn't even know he was throwing a no-hitter because the game took so long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ninth inning came around. We looked up the scoreboard. Shit, this guy's got a, a no-hitter going. Better lock into this. And he got it and started jumping around. But it really didn't even feel like that dominant of a performance because all the, the extra pitches and walks. That's exactly what the night when Burnett threw that one was. We're covering out on the West Coast night game. So it's like, we're not going to make deadline anyway. So we'll sit back and watch it. We're eating a popcorn. And it's like sixth inning. And the two, the two other beat writers from the Her- Miami Herald and the Palm Beach Post and myself from the Sun Sentinel, we're sitting there watching this thing. And it's like sixth inning. We're sitting literally, I'm eating popcorn, watching a game going, I'll file a story for tomorrow's paper, you know. Uh, and I told the other guys, I go, you realize he hadn't given up a hit, right? Because there, <laughs> there had been two guys on, I think, every inning to that point. Yeah. On base. Yeah, it, that's it shouldn't so, even count. <laughs> so you're not thinking about it. You're thinking, right. well, even if he hadn't given up a hit, he's not going to make it out of the seventh inning. He's I mean, pitches it's been kind strong. of sloppy. And then all of a sudden, the outs started clicking off like this. And I'm like, I call the desk and I'm going, it's seventh inning. And I don't think he's going to last. But just so you know, A.J. Burnett's throwing a no-hitter. He's got a shot. Okay, we'll hold the presses just in case. Let us know. We're still thinking <laughs> there's no way. And the, and the last six outs felt like that he it, he must have thrown like seven pitches to get the last yeah. six outs. <laughs> But he did it. It was amazing. Crazy. The Marlins owner, John Henry, went on, you know, it's the Red Sox now, obviously. He uh he was it was one of the few nights that he wasn't at the ballpark. He had promised his wife he had his yacht. He had this massive yacht that he it was like 130 feet. And he couldn't dock it in a lot of places, but he could dock it in San Diego. So he took it to San Diego when the Braves played out there. And he told his wife, uh, his wife came out and was in the yacht. He told his wife he promised her he'd take her out to dinner that night instead of going to the game. So he took her out to dinner. But he's following the game on, you know, his phone or whatever. And uh, it's like seventh inning. He's going, he's A.J. Burnett's got a no-hitter. He's saying, he tells his wife, she's like, are you going to watch your phone? He's like, he's throwing a no-hitter. And, and he asked his wife, like seventh uh, or seventh or the eighth inning, he asked her, do you Can mind? Over there? Can I go over there? And she goes, "Go ahead." So yeah. he gets it. He already his, lost he, anyway. He she already his, hated him at so that he point. He gets in his limo, his driver, whatever his driver's got him in. Speeds him over to the ballpark because they're like on the other side of San Diego. Speeds him over to Qualcomm at the time. It was out of Qualcomm, and oh. Qualcomm is surrounded by like a hundred acres of parking lots, like the huge parking lots, and. You know, they're like in the eighth inning, ninth inning, and the security's not letting people come in. 
You can only go out. So it's the ninth inning. He pulls up. Security stops his, his limo uh, or whatever's you know, it's his escalator, whatever it is. And it, and he rolls in the window. He goes, I'm John Henry. I own the Marlins. And the, my guy's throwing a no-hitter. And the guy goes, sir, I can't let you in. He goes, I no, you, you, do you have any ID? And he goes, I own the team. And he goes, I, I can't <laughs> let you in, sir. You have to, you'll have to walk from here. So John Henry, little skinny John Henry, is like jogging across the parking lot. We get down there. He's sweating like crazy, and he had missed the last pitch. He had just got there when it ended. <laughs> but so, but he's down there sweating profusely, and he was so happy that he that AJ had thrown the no hitter, but he missed it. So, but anyway, uh, that's my that's my tough break. Story. <laughs> um, tough break. It's uh, let's see, next one. Aaron Smith at a Aaron Smith. Get it? A Aaron Smith. Uh, <laughs> Is playing 18 to 19 divisional teams too many to d- games against divisional teams too many? Would baseball benefit from a complete realignment? Yes, it's too many. I, I hate that schedule that they started years ago playing division teams 18, 19 games a year. I hate it. What do you think? Uh, I don't know what the alternative is, uh, but I don't. I didn't mind it because it, it gave me a little bit of comfort against the team. But yeah. from an entertainment standpoint, you know, it's it's probably better to be playing a lot of different teams and, and mixing it up. I think yeah. interleague's been good. Um, it's not something that I feel real passionate about either way. I can totally see as a player, as a, especially as a pitcher or hitter, you would, you, those, you would relish the second half and facing those teams third, fourth time in the series. But as a fan, it gets yeah. old, man. When you're playing, when the Braves yeah. are playing the Florida Marlins or the Mets for the fifth series of the year, now, yeah. when you're playing the the Nationals in a pennant race, right. yeah, that's exciting. But those are the few and far, you know, between. Usually, it's playing the Marlins, and they're just like you have no motivation to turn tune in as a fan and watch that. If I'm not covering a series against the Marlins, for instance, or a game, you know, I have a tough time watching it. So, well, especially if a team's just bad, yeah, you know, even you know, even if it's free wins, you know, if they're coming to town, you know, you're getting two out of three every time. That's good for you padding your numbers and, and playoffs and everything like that. But even as a player, you have a hard time getting up for that. You know, it's like, here comes this shit show again. And, and you know what they're going to do. Um, I, as a player, I did like it because there was times where I just felt like nobody on Philly was going to hit me. And I felt so yeah. comfortable against them. Whenever they'd rolled to town or we'd go to Philly, I mean, it was my, my confidence would, would shoot up because I'd yeah. already had so much success against them during the year. Um, but from a fan standpoint or watching watching games, it's like if you know your team's going to win two or two out of three, three out of four against this team that's rebuilding or, or or not really trying or whatever they're doing, it's it's like, you know, why even tune in? I'll just check the box score, see if anything cool happened. I'd cut out six of those games at least, two or two series at least, and add series against uh, – I mean, you could add two more interleague series a year yeah. uh, for each of those. Uh, you know, you could get, you could, if you could work it out where you could play all the American League teams once, that would be to me yeah, tremendous. That'd be cool. But if you could play like the Dodgers, you know, uh, if you could play the other teams in your league, one more series and your division opponents, two fewer series, if you could somehow work it out, especially if you had to realign the series, you know, the, the or add a team in each league. When they add a team in each league, if they expand to 32, maybe you could do something like that. But I just think it'd be so much better if you could play, you know, Mike Trout more than every five years and go to Seattle yeah, more than every true. five years and that kind of thing. It, yeah, it'd be nice for 
for everyone in the uh, every fan base in the league to see Mike Trout yeah. for three to six games. I, I agree with that 100. percent The only thing that's tough is is when you you want to decide your division against that team in your division. You yeah. Know? If you only yeah. had eight games against the Nationals last year, yeah. And you know they wind up, you want to you want a chance to do damage against that best team in your division that that you're trying to go to the playoffs against. But from entertainment standpoint, yeah, seeing Mike Trout, every team should get to see Mike Trout every year. If you could have the divisional games in the month of September, that would be cool. You know, if yeah. you're playing all divisional games in the month of September, you know, yeah. so so that so you have some of those stretch drives. You know, you're playing the Nationals a couple times in September, maybe or at least once. That'd be great, but yeah, like you say, say for instance, uh, you play, you know, the Angels once every five years, and Trout happens to be hurt in one or both of those series. <laughs> so, you, yeah. so there's going to be fans that don't see it, that don't see him at all, like might not ever see him play in person. Just highlights. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think that'd be great if they could do that. I, I just think eighteen, nineteen is too many, too many. Yeah. Um, Chris E, I can't read this. C G C J E Omaha. At CJE Omaha, Chris E. He says, hey, yeah. hey, Dave and Eric, love your podcast. We know veteran catchers, i.e. McCann, have a huge impact on young pitching staffs. But can you walk us through a game plan? How do veteran pitchers dictate to young catchers and who calls pitches? How does Maddox handle a rookie catcher? That's a good question. Have at it, Eric. Well, if you're catching Maddox, you just guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's got his plan and he probably talks to you ahead of time, uh-huh. um, tells you what he wants to do, but you could just throw down fingers and he's going to shake to what he wants mm-hmm. and then just set up and catch the ball and make it look good. Right. Um, and it's, it's complete opposite, you know, vice versa for a young, uh, a young pitcher um, throwing to a catcher. That's got a lot of experience. Say a rookie comes up and, and McCann's catching, you're not shaking him. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, matter of fact, I didn't shake my whole career just because I didn't, I didn't want it on me. I just was going to make a good pitch. Uh, I didn't want to think too much out there. Uh, it was just, you put the finger down, I'm going to hit the glove. If I didn't like the pitch, I'd make sure to miss off the plate or, or either hit my spot or miss off the plate with it. But um, it's usually a combination, you know, because you'll, you'll have a mix of a catcher that's been three, four years in and a veteran pitcher or, or a pitcher that's starting to get his feet under him. It's a lot of communication. So um, what you'll see is you'll see the, the starting pitcher sitting down with the, the catcher, the starting catcher for that day. You know, around three or four o'clock and they'll have they'll have a note, you know, they'll have notes and they'll have the lineup and they'll be going back and forth how they want to approach every single hitter. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the catcher's probably been there at two o'clock watching video and sometimes the pitchers have sometimes they stroll in at four um, uh-huh. just want to talk about it. It's always different, but right. usually it's it's a lot of input on both sides coming up with a plan. Um, and, then you know, the bottom line is you don't throw a pitch you don't want to you don't want to throw. So it, it always falls on the pitcher's shoulders in the end to, to throw the right pitch. And, and the catchers are just making suggestions, but most of the catchers now are so prepared and, and the scouting so good. Uh, it's really easy just to put your trust in them. And that's what I elected to do. I just trusted the catchers and tried to hit the glove. Uh, uh, somewhat related to that. Is it easier? Do you think it helps a catcher? I, obviously you want all your teammates to be good guys that you can get along with and be, have good personalities and be universally respected in the clubhouse, but it is even more important uh, in some regard for the catcher to be that type of guy. Cause it seems like some yes. of the best, a lot, a lot of the best guys, the best dudes that have come through with the Braves. And before that, when I was covering the Marlins have been catchers, guys like Rossi, uh, obviously B Mac, Tyler flowers, a great guy. Uh, Zook before him, you know, uh, seems like, 
all these are, are good dudes that, the, that you want to spend time with. Is that important? You know, it's harder to, to easier to, when you, when you want to be with the guy for hours talking about a, a game plan. Well, I think more than anything, just knowing that they care. Yeah. You know, they don't have to be a good dude. They could be a complete asshole. But if if you see how they go about their work and and how invested they are and you know they care about your success, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they're really good teammates, um, they could be – you might not even want to have a drink with them away from the field. But when, when you connect with them on the field and you know what they've invested in it mm-hmm. and you know they're invested in your success, it just makes everything so much easier to trust. And honestly, for me, especially because I'm just throwing whatever they call, uh, trust was huge. Yeah. Uh, so when I knew that they were invested, they'd done their research and whatnot. Um, when they called a pitch, I could throw it with a hundred percent conviction. And for whatever reason in the big leagues, if you throw a pitch with 80% conviction, it gets crushed every time. Uh-huh. But if you throw it with a hundred percent conviction, it can be right down the middle. You can miss your spot by a foot and a half. And it'll be a pop-up to the infield because of that all in mindset and that, that trust in the pitch. There's just something about the way the ball comes out of your hands when you're just free and easy and, and believe in what you're throwing that you just happen to get out. And flip side, if you doubt it and feel terrible about the pitch, you can hit the glove. Mm-hmm. It's getting crushed every time. So, you know, that that confidence you get from the catcher is really important. Yeah. And I'm just while you were talking, I was running through my head. Some other guys there have been a the guy, the teams that I've covered, there really have been an inordinate number of what you would call good guys and guys that were invested in the team and that never had their uh, motivation questioned. Uh, guys like with the Marlins, Mike Redman was like that. Great dude, yeah. smart guy. Uh, Charles Johnson was like that. Um, it just seems like there's Eddie Eddie Perez is like that. Yep. You know, it's just something about them though. And then you look at the numbers and they kind of match up with yeah um, what the guys bring to the table. There's not a lot of guys that are these really invested quality catchers that just can't seem to put the right fingers down. Like they, right. they always seem to figure it out. Right. And the pitchers believe in them. Yeah. Uh, this one from Andrew green at green MLB. One rule change. Oh, well, these are great questions. I like doing this one yeah. rule change you've seen during your career or covering baseball that you despise regardless of public opinion. Ooh, you go first. Uh, I know what I'm saying. Contact. Um, contact on plays at second base, oh, uh, home yeah. plate, uh, throwing yeah. at hitters. Uh, just that whole side of the game. I know it's violent yes. and people get hurt and, and they, bar- they barely ever did, but people can get hurt and it's mm-hmm. dangerous and whatever. It's easy for my bitch ass to say that because I was a reliever sitting yeah. in the bullpen watching. But, uh, you know, even from a, a fan standpoint, yeah. I just love that anger and hatred between two teams. Yeah. You know, knowing they hate each other, knowing there's a history, knowing something might pop off. Um, it was just must see TV for me as a kid growing up. And, and even now watching like, you know, after the Marlins hit Acuna, I couldn't wait to see what happened. Yes, next. exactly. Uh, that, that element of the game is pretty much gone. And. Yeah. That was something I really love about baseball. Uh, I love the anticipation of what's going to happen yeah. after somebody does something dirty, and it's pretty much out of the game now. So that that that'd be the one I'd say. I agree, man. Take out slides at second. People go, oh, that's awesome. dirty. They, and collisions at the plate. I mean, as long as they weren't, you know, going out of the way. Collisions at the plate were memorable, <laughs> man. Yes. Uh, yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. Just that those that and my other one replay and i know i'm in the minority i hate replay and i know (laughs) they get it right more often than not i don't care i think the spirit of the rule is changed when you use replay the way you have you could have used it for good 
but I think they took it to the extreme when you start yeah. doing the play at second base. Now that you have off. every shortstop and second baseman holds his glove on the runner in case his co- he breaks contact with the bag for a millisecond. You can't even see it with the human eye until you. That is not in the spirit of the rule. They played that game like that for over a century. That doesn't help the game to teach a runner that your your foot can't come off your natural uh, inertia takes your foot off the bag. For a millisecond. Yes, and so that should not be an out. So the extremes of replay like that, to me, have ruined the game. But I think replay in general took out what you were talking about, the explosiveness of when you have collisions in the aftermath and the, and what goes on back and forth, the jockeying back and forth between teams and might carry over to the next game, the series, and the rest of the year. I think the other thing that I hate seeing, another thing that's taken the emotion out because of replays, is – managers blowing up and getting ejected. You don't see yes. it anymore because of replay. How yeah. many? How much memorable from Bobby Cox's illustrious career, how many of those ejections are? do you remember and, and what the effect they had on his team and on the game? I mean, that was huge. People came out to see Bobby Cox. What's he going to do now? What's he going to do because his, his, his pitcher's getting squeezed or they missed that call at the plate. Bobby Cox is going to come running out of that dugout, and it was a show. And I thought it was a huge part of what made baseball watchable. Just like what you just said. People can say whatever they want. Say, you know, what, we're not to see a grown man throwing a fit in a uniform? Yes. People wanted to see the (laughs) human emotion. Just like you said, we want to see a catcher get his knee blown out. No, we don't want to see that. We don't want to see a guy get concussions. But those are few and far between compared to how many times – we got to see the emotion of the baseball. Pete Rose, the collision at home plate. You know, Lonnie Smith's collision at the plate. Those are huge parts of the game, and I think we're really missing out. And the whole generation of fans is not getting to see baseball. What it, 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 in the the real what? I mean, I don't want to go back to Ty Cobb with the sharpening his spikes, that kind of thing. But take out slides and occasional collisions at the plate. I miss it, man. And I miss the it's just I, clean, I, clean, hard baseball. It doesn't I, have to be yes, dirty. I miss the and I miss the manager coming erupting out of the dugout. Bobby Cox come flying out. And George Brett come flying out. You know, things that replay wouldn't have happened with. Well, his was pine tar, but replay just taken out so much of the emotion of the game. Yeah, now you just make a phone call and shrug your shoulders. Yes, it's terrible. <laughs> and then that, yeah. and then how about what? Not even mention how it slows the game down for two and three minutes sometimes. And then they like, get it wrong, and, it's, it's, yeah. and they usually get it wrong because it's not overwhelming <laughs> evidence. It's just bad. Yeah. It's there's so much more bad about replay than there is good. And I'm not saying there isn't anything good about it. There is, but there's way more bad about it. What it's done bad for the game than good. To me, yeah, I'd rather they just show it on the show it on the scoreboard and let the umps decide and keep the game moving. Yeah, Give have, them 22 seconds. Have the umpires watching in New York, and if they see a play that they think needs to be changed, they call the umpires. Have a head, have a have a earpiece, whatever you need to do. Call and say that needs to be changed. You don't need take it out of the manager's hands. They don't need to appeal yeah. it. Take it out of their hands. Just change it if you see something that needs to be changed. And then it's not. You have to be quick to do that. And then it's not. You can do that. You can. Then it's not the stupid glove on the on the uh, runner, the base runner, because you're also guys don't want to steal if they're gonna if they can't. There's no way you can can maintain contact with the bag when you run as fast as some of these guys. You know, I I just hate it. Yeah, it ups the risk. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. That's that wasn't what it was supposed to be used for, but it's about half the challenges. 
All right. I'm glad he asked that. That's <laughs> <laughs> fired up. The next one is Powwow VIP at Powwow VIP and VIP. And it's who's the most talented, least heralded player you've played with or covered and why? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say Johnny Venters just for two reasons. Um, mainly because he got hurt. You know, that cost him a lot. And two, because he had zero personality. Um, I think, you know, he just wanted to be left alone. He didn't, he didn't want to be in the spotlight and everything. But I think if he could have grown a mohawk and screamed at hitters, he would have gotten a lot more um, national press. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I went to, he did get a lot of press in Atlanta. I'll say that. But, but yeah. nationally, um, the stuff he was throwing was some of the craziest things, pitches I'd ever seen. Uh, when I went to Oakland, people would ask questions. You know, they'd be like, hey, that, that Venders guy was pretty good. You know, what happened to him? I'd, I'd say pretty good. No, you've never seen a fastball like this. And I just dragged them straight to the video room and I'd show guys because guys had heard about him, but they hadn't seen the chance to had the chance to really see him throw. Uh-huh. Um, guys' jaws would drop when they'd see um, a 97 mile an hour sinker just dropping two feet. Uh, I, I would always show them this clip of um, Johnny throwing a, a fastball that basically went in front of James Loney and then the catcher caught it behind him. And Loney swings at it while jumping out of the way of it and lands on his ass stands up pats bmac on the back for some reason and jogs off the field it was a first or second out i mean he just couldn't get out of that box yeah. fast enough yeah i'd always show him that just to kind of encapsulate you know here's what johnny was bringing to the table as a pitcher um and then just you know a talent and ability you know he could dunk a basketball he was an option quarterback in high school just a freak athlete all around that i think if he could have stayed healthy um you know way way more people would have would have grown to appreciate him and and man, if he could have stayed healthy, he, the entire baseball world would know who he was instead of asking, you know, if he was pretty good or not. I, I love that one. I would I would not disagree with that one at all. And I love that guy. But, man, you're right. He was unhittable. As close to unhittable yeah. as any. His sinker to me was right there with Mariano Rivera's cutters, yep. the two probably most unhittable pitches until, and you know, and then King Felix's changeup for a while too, obviously. But that sinker, man, and everybody knew he's. But that's throw what it. Mo said. He threw it every fuck, every pitch, just about. And that's they tried to make that comparison and say the last time we've seen a pitch, you know, this nasty or or this unhittable that someone could tell the hitter was coming yeah. and they still can't hit. Um, somebody, I think maybe ESPN had written an article and asked uh, Mariano about it, and they and he basically just said, "Well, that's great, but let's see what he's doing in eighteen more years because that's what I've been doing." Right. 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 And, and that really, I mean, the health is so important, obviously, yeah. but yeah. just to even get compared with Mariano's yeah. cutter, which is one of the best pitches of all time, yeah. um, shows you where he was, where he was kind of headed if he could have stayed healthy. Yeah. I like that one. And the other one I would give you, uh, he became a little more heralded late because he won, you know, a world series, I think with the, with the giants, but Edgar Renteria to mm. me was one of the most talented uh, players and another guy who did not ever draw attention to himself, never said anything crazy, acted crazy, just went out and played his ass off every day. That and he was you. terrific defensively. I mean, he was a great defensive player and he came up with more big hits for a guy whose numbers weren't overwhelming. He had some huge hits in his career. And the Marlins don't win a World Series, obviously, in 97 if it wasn't for him. So. But uh, I thought he was a Giants too. He helped the Giants. Yes, terrific player, terrific player. Uh, Patrick Williams at P A T R one C K W. Patrick Williams, best prank Eric ever saw as a Brave. 
it was Huddy's. Huddy's jumping out of the closet. <laughs> Eddie <routine>. Perez <laughs> with Eddie Perez. No, he he was still doing that uh, when we were teammates. Oh, um, he did. Well, the veterans get off the bus first. Yeah. So when you get to the hotel, all the keys are laid out on the table uh-huh. with everybody's name on it. So Huddy would be, you know, if it was going to be a rookie, they'd be in, they'd be, uh, they'd be in the back of the bus. They're not getting off for a while. Um, Huddy would go in and, and there's two keys in there. So he'd take one of their keys and they're unassuming. They don't even know it. And he'd be on the elevator first. He'd just go right up to their room and get either in the closet or the shower. And, you know, the first thing everybody's going to do, they're going to either, you know, put, put, put their suitcase in the closet or put their stuff down and, you know, maybe hang their suit up in the closet and start getting changed. Yeah, right, or you right. go to the bathroom, you yeah. know, you got to go to the bathroom. Right. So he'd be one of those spots and you, you're thinking you're in this empty room and how do you just jump out and scream at you? I mean, he got everybody with that. Oh, <laughs> such man. a good prank. Dude, you could give somebody a heart attack if they weren't young and fit. <laughs> they got me. <laughs> hey, so so when you got up to your thing, because there's one key and it's gone, did you just go, my key's not here, and you got another one? You just assumed it. Yeah, you just go to your yeah. room. You, you didn't, you know, he'd get it, he'd get young guys. So or or you just assume this hotel's given us one key. You know, it wasn't like a standard rule. It just seemed like everybody did it. Oh, or sometimes. So, oh, so there were two keys out usually. There were always two keys and in, in your envelope. And he would take one of them. I got He'd take you. one. So he'd just have a free key to your room. And it says it says your says your name and room number on the front of the envelope. So he'd just go into your envelope while you're getting off the bus and go right up to your room. <laughs> that is terrific, man. Yeah, that's a good one. It worked every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Ooh, this one's really tough. Why are you doing this to us, Andrew? We shouldn't read this, but I'm going to. Andrew Paquette at Andrew Paquette. Choose one and why. Young, prime, Chris Medlin or Mike Soroka? Oh, come on, man. I I don't even think that's... I'm taking Soroka and I don't even think it's even close. Well, we love Chris Medlin. I love Med. No offense to see Med, but he said the same thing. And look at the numbers he put up that year before he got hurt. I know he did, but Medlin was in A ball at twenty one. <laughs> but you yeah, Stroke has already put together a dominant major league season, and, and he was doing it what with a change up and. Uh, but, but man, he put together a half season that was off the charts. But yeah, is no question, Mike Soroka. If I, is, I know, think if Mike's, I had to pick one yeah. to have in my organization, I mean, you feel like it's a no brainer. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, nothing against Med. I think Mike Soroka, and I've said this since they, before they uh, they brought him up that first game. We said that in the spring training, though, that year. I think Mike Soroka, I thought it then, I think it now, is the next Braves superstar pitcher, the next yeah. big three caliber, that type of talent. I think he's the best pitching prospect they've had, and they've had some damn good ones. Some but really he's good ones. the best one they've had in quite a while. And uh, if he could just stay healthy – I don't think there's anything that's going to keep this guy from being one of the best eh, three or four pitchers over the next decade in the majors. Yeah, he's, he's just got he's got different movement on his ball. He's I mean, he throws pretty hard for how much his ball moves too. Super mature, um, and he's bigger, more durable than Medlin. Uh, you know, he's got more quality pitches too. Medlin was basically his curveball was all right, but he was fastball changeup. Um, so for me, it's it's easy to pick Soroka, but you know I've been watching all the Braves prospects too. The only guy I remember thinking might be this good uh, early on was Tommy Hansen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And even Tommy was twenty three, I think twenty four when he got right. to the big leagues. And right. I mean, I can't overstate how young 
uh, Soroka is and what he's doing at this age and how mature he is. It just, it's such a bright future to already be this advanced mentally. I mean, most of us are going to a bar for the first time. We're just morons at 21 and he's, he's dominating a big league season. Yeah. He's the most mature 21 year old. I can, I can remember, uh, I mean, there's I, surely there's been some others that were that mature, but I I can't think of any. I mean, he is so advanced and really <laughs> intelligent. So yeah. you add that with the body that he's got, which is kind of perfect for a pitcher, and he throws hard. It's not like he's up there, you know, throwing ninety. He's no. throwing hard, and that yeah. movement. I think he's got everything. I, I, I don't yeah. think there's anything to hold him back as long as he stays healthy, man. Yep. Uh, this one's from Tim Gordon. We'll just get a couple more. Man, this has ended up going close to an hour and a half with this, dude. Tim Dang. Gordon. Tim Gordon at home. Tim Runner. Dave gave us an amazing Doss, Andre Dawson article for his favorite ball player. Eric, who is your favorite and why? Uh, I mean, the kid, Ken Griffey Jr. You know, I, I don't go. think I don't think I even have to say why. He was he was 95% of my generation's favorite player and mm-hmm. everybody else was probably chipper or, or just a Braves fan. Cause they were on TBS, but uh-huh. um, you know, it was just, he did everything. I mean, he hit homers. He had the best swing. Every single kid tried to emulate his swing and made incredible catches. Like some of the catches he'd make up against the wall were positions you couldn't even put your body in. Uh, he played the game with so much joy. You know, and I, you know, I think about that a lot. Um, because what drew that whole generation to Griffey was the flair he played with. If Griffey would have been like, you know, a Tim Duncan mindset where he just kind of did his job and jogged off the field, he could have put up whatever numbers he wanted. But what drew us all to him was was the flair he played with. He wasn't yeah. afraid to pimp the homer, wear the hat backwards. He smiled, laughed. He showed emotion on the field. I mean, he was really like a kid out there. And I think about that a lot, you know, whenever I'm kind of getting worked up over all the bat flips and and crazy cleats and haircuts the guys have today you know it's 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 funny being on the different side of it and thinking well your favorite player growing up was your favorite player because of the stuff he did now the guys are doing it and you know you're trying to look at it from a negative you know viewpoint because you don't think it's necessarily or they're drawing attention to themselves but really they're just having fun and and that's what drew us all to griffey so i always try to remember that um with him uh and and whenever i'm kind of evaluating a player and whether I like them or not in the game and, and whether it's good for baseball or not. I think that, you know, guys like Javi Baez, even if they rub some players the wrong way, I think they're really good for baseball. Excellent. Well, we'll just stand on that note because that was, I thought that was a very good answer. Um, Hey, this is cool. We'll do this again. This went, this went really well. And I know I didn't get to half the questions that people asked, uh, on Twitter, and I had a couple more on here, like how social media has changed the job I do. Well, it's completely changed it. I mean, I spend yeah. hours a day on social media, but we, I don't have much time. We're going to leave this now because we're at closing up on an hour and a half, and we'll carry a few of these questions forward. And and uh, next time we'll do another of these in another week or two, especially as long as this uh, as long as there's no baseball. Why not? So, but this is great. Yeah. We appreciate all the questions, and sorry we didn't get to all of them. We'll get to some more of them next time. But this has been cool, and we'll be back on Friday, and that's it. 7.55 is real. We are out. See you.